Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. I was actually at a restaurant called Crossroads with Jay-Z. This was some years ago. And I was like, what is this? What, what in the world is this? And so then, fast forward to me playing in Houston, I got a chance to try plant-based meat. That is superstar point guard Chris Paul. He's been in the NBA since 2005. Since then, he's been Rookie of the Year, MVP of the All-Star Game. He's won two Olympic gold medals. And in 2019, Chris started eating plant-based. You know, in sports, people always say that your gut is your second brain. And it is real. It is real. Just like anybody, I had dairy, had meat, everything my whole life. You play these games, and after games, you eat. And a lot of times you eat, and you just like, ugh. Like you slumped over. This was enough for Chris to start shifting just a little away from full carnivore. I didn't played a lot of games in these last 16 years of my career. And after games, I wake up and I'm sore. I'm achy. I've had a number of surgeries. And I was like, hold on. They saying that you perform better, you have more energy. Are they lying? Is this a trick? <laughs> and so I literally went cold turkey, or what people say, they say cold tofu. Right. I went cold tofu, came back from family vacation, and on a Monday, I stopped eating meat. But then, as Chris tells it, the payoff started kicking in. I called my trainer. I was like, are we not lifting heavy? Are we not working out hard? Because the soreness, all that stuff that I had felt for years, it went away. <laughs> Today, Chris will talk veganism with anyone who will listen, including you. But as a professional athlete, no decision he makes is in a vacuum. It was critical that Chris convince his wider team. That includes every single trainer and coach whose livelihood depends on his success. My trainer was like, what are you doing this for? Why? You know, everybody always said that you're going to lose so much weight. You're going to get so small. You got to make sure you check your blood, make sure you get B12. My chef, my team, my trainers, people were very cautious. All right, we play a lot of games. I've been playing for a lot of years, and they like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. But to me, it actually was kind of broke. <laughs> what Chris was trying to do isn't easy. He was asking his trainers and coaches, people who have spent their lives telling other people how to eat, to adopt a 
totally new mindset. Which meant considering the possibility that what they knew was wrong. Most entrepreneurs face this same challenge when bringing a new product or idea to the market. And most customers, just like Chris's coaches, take a little convincing. But unlike those coaches, there's rarely a contract to keep a customer at your side. If you violate their wishes, they can just walk away, even if deep down you know you're right. That's why I believe that you need to listen to your customers, even when what they want is inconvenient or inconsistent or even wrong. Track their point of view and let them know you're listening. You gotta have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to this is totally gonna be amazing. There are so many easy ways. So, so, so I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working at a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made it just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. We'll start the show in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. (laughs) That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business, and she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock, and your host. And I believe you need to listen to your customers, even when what they want is inconvenient, inconsistent, or even wrong. You don't need to agree, but you must track their point of view and let them know you're listening. When you're trying to scale, I like to say, Bits are easier than atoms, which just means that software is easier to scale than goods in the physical world. Easier to test, easier to launch, and easier to get fast feedback on every aspect of your product from, I'm having trouble using it, to, I want this button to be purple. You want to try and create that feedback loop for every product or service you offer, because customer tastes can be idiosyncratic and unpredictable. You can plan for every use case, every preference, and never come up with, I want the button to be purple. The work it takes to change a button from red to purple might be negligible in the digital world. 
So you do it. Issue a global update, and it's done. But this change can be crushingly expensive with a physical product. Think about all the millions of widgets with red buttons you'd need to recall. And you know, in your heart of hearts, it makes absolutely no difference to your product what color the button is. So what do you do? Do you still change the button? I wanted to talk to Ethan Brown about this because no one has spent more time obsessing over the balance between what makes the best product and what the customer actually wants, even when those aren't the same. As the founder and CEO of Beyond Meat, Ethan has spent his career on a wildly difficult challenge, creating a new category of food that people actually trust. We're very conservative as a species when it comes to what we want to put in our mouth, for good reason, because it can die if you put the wrong thing in. There's a skepticism that you have to overcome. Ethan grew up with a healthy sense of skepticism himself, splitting his time between urban life and life on the farm. I grew up in the city, but there was this farm we bought very early in my life in the western part of the state of Maryland. And it's up up really high in the mountain there and just a beautiful place. And I fell in love with not only the animals in the fields and streams and forests, but also became very interested in the ones in the barn. I was never given the answer as to why animals in the barn had a different fate than animals inside our house. And so I was sort of left to figure that out. Let's say a pig and a dog, they were clearly different beings but I had trouble understanding why one was treated one way and the other another way. I was pretty incoherent about how I approached things. I tried and I struggled. Should I just eat fish? Should I just eat humanely raised animals? You know, there's a while where I wasn't eating any meat, but I was wearing leather. After college, I became vegetarian, then ultimately vegan. And it was that integration of if I care enough to be vegetarian, then I should probably care enough to be vegan. If I care enough to be vegan, then I should probably also think about the clothes I wear and everything else. Not only was it hard to develop a consistent ideology, but it was hard to get others to understand it, even before he'd gone full vegan. In college, I played basketball, but I kept getting injured, and people would say, it's because you don't eat meat. And I didn't have the nutritional understanding to know how false that was. That sounds a lot like Chris Paul's story at the top of the episode. Ethan was fighting the cultural bias that meat is what makes you strong. The thing is, that bias didn't come out of nowhere. Early humans made evolutionary leaps and bounds once we learned how to hunt, and again when we learned how to cook what we hunted. Meat did, in a real evolutionary sense, make us strong. But since then, humans have also learned how to get complete protein from plants. Some types of meat substitutes are over 2,000 years old. Yet, most of us still have this gut-level instinct that meat is still king. It's less that it's wrong, and more, that it used to be right. As Ethan graduated college, he turned his attention not to food production, but to another industry that's environmentally focused. How did you get into energy? So when I was just out of school, I was actually having a conversation with my dad about this. We're sitting in his office, and I said, Dad, I'm not sure what I want to do. I'm having trouble deciding. And he asked me, he said, sort of, what's the biggest problem in the world? I think in a very literal sense, like what is the biggest problem? You can be a great surgeon or a great musician or actor or writer, et cetera. But if the world has become destabilized because of climate, none of those crafts can be protected. And so I thought, well, the biggest problem really is stabilizing the climate. As a systems thinker, I appreciate this holistic approach. You may have heard me say something similar when it comes to stabilizing our democracy. Ethan took his father's advice and went about tackling the world's biggest problem. He pursued a master in public policy focusing on the environment. 
and then got to work on zero-emission hydrogen fuel cell technologies. I was very interested in the equitable consumption of carbon. How do we deal with this problem, given that most of it was from the Northern Hemisphere and from developed nations, and yet the developing nations are the one that we have to curb and control if we're going to solve this? Ethan saw that moving the needle on energy use needed to rely on not just science, but also on tracking and responding to consumer behavior. If industrialized nations are dumping too much carbon into the atmosphere, there are only a limited number of ways to change it. You can try and convince people to cut way, way down on activities that warm the planet, like flying or driving. Or you can build technology that make those activities less harmful. Ethan went with the latter. I still root for the technology. I love working in that sector. But the longer he worked in the sector, the more he started noticing a different kind of customer behavior that flew in the face of science. And it was coming from within his own industry. I spent so much time with the Department of Energy and other places. All the money we're spending on lithium-ion batteries and these conferences I go to, and then people would eat steak. That's right. In rooms full of people who cared deeply about saving the planet, they were completely ignoring one of the biggest drivers of climate change. For perspective, one serving of beef produces 24 times the greenhouse gases of one serving of tofu. To Ethan, ignoring the food sector was like trying to fix a pipe that's gushing water but refusing to use your wrench. Not only do I care passionately about this issue, but I'm focusing on a secondary solution when it's a primary one, which is the energy we put in our bodies, not necessarily the energy we put in our cars. I had a great career. It took a lot to nudge me out of that comfort, but it was discomfort that led me to it. I was in so much discomfort about not addressing it that I ultimately had to address it. In 2009, Ethan quit his day job and founded Beyond Meat. I love this writer, Stephen Johnson, who writes about the slow hunch. We love these stories of the apple falling from the tree and things like that, but they're generally not true. You have to sit and marinate in the problem for a long time. And I had spent a decade or so marinating in this problem, trying to figure out I loved meat growing up. I love KFC and McDonald's and all those places. And I wanted to keep eating there. And I had no interest in a meat substitute, like I never did. I wanted to try to scientifically rebuild meat. I just want to point out this goal Ethan set had an impressive degree of difficulty. Not just scientifically rebuilding meat, but the ultimate goal, which was to convince meat eaters to change their preference to plants. Setting out to change any kind of consumer preference is not easy to do especially where food is concerned. But it was essential to his mission. He wasn't going to solve the biggest problem in the world by appealing just to vegetarians and vegans. To make a real dent, he'd have to go after meat eaters. So what do you do when your vegan product needs meat-eating customers? Make it taste just like meat. Now here, Ethan might quibble with my word choice, because as he puts it, Beyond isn't just like meat— it is meat. We'll have Ethan explain. People think meat is some kind of mystery, but in fact, all the pieces you need to build a piece of meat are already there in plants. You just got to go find them. And I know the composition is amino acids, lipids, trace minerals, vitamins, and water. And I know those are all available in plants. Then it's a question of what is the process for getting it to form into the structure of meat without using a biological living organism? The question had become Ethan's passion. He eventually found his answer in a team of scientists at the University of Missouri. I called up a guy named Fu Hong She, talked to him and his partner. Uh, his partner's Harold Huff. They're both dear friends of mine today. And they were scientists who needed an entrepreneur, and I was an entrepreneur who needed a scientist. And we got together, and man, it was a great relationship from the beginning. 
Dr. Shea and Mr. Huff held the patent on a plant-based protein that pulled apart like real chicken. It was exactly what Ethan and his brand new company were looking for. He helped the team secure funding and a new partnership was born. I had a program that I put together with the University of Maryland and the University of Missouri and got grants from the state of Maryland to do that. You know, I've said this before that big companies have R&D budgets and entrepreneurs have universities. You know, I just am absolutely convinced that we are leaving so much on the table by not just mining these universities for the great research they're doing. So I began to put those two programs together and started to work on not necessarily a product, but a structure. And it was a muscle structure because I fell in love with this structure of being able to tear it apart and see the muscle fiber. Mm. It was that striation of muscle. We take the protein from a plant. We take the lipids from a plant. We take the minerals from non-animal sources, combine those with water and vitamins, we run that through heating, cooling, and pressure to structure them into the architecture of muscle or meat. This was the eureka moment that would make everything else possible. A plant-based structure that not just tasted like meat, but ripped apart like meat. This was what Ethan was looking for. There was just one problem. The best product, if you want to go out in the market, would be beef, because that's the thing that people always understand is most deleterious to their body and all the issues that we know about. But this particular system lent itself not to what was best for the market. This lent itself to chicken. Here, we come to an interesting dilemma, one that many entrepreneurs will recognize. The plant-based meat they'd made wasn't the so-called fake meat they knew the public would be hungriest for. If replacing burgers or steak is what the public really wants, is it worth going to market with a substitute for chicken? Ethan decided, yes. I said, okay, so in that way, we kind of let technology lead us. So we launched with this chicken product as really the first real product that we had. We actually always knew that beef was the better play. I just didn't have a technological solution for it. So does this mean Ethan ignored the customer's wishes? No, because he was solving for an even more basic customer demand, that it tastes just like the real thing. The market was already full of meat substitutes meant to placate that vegetarian friend at a barbecue. If Beyond was going to get liftoff, their first product had to taste so much like meat, it would seem like magic. Their target customer was their biggest skeptic, not just the meat eater, but the meat lover. Ethan understood that point of view all too well from his own pre-vegan days. Nobody likes a piece of fried chicken more than me. I love that stuff, and I really look forward to eating it, right? And that's why we're working so hard on this. That's a good experience to have. Let's keep giving people the opportunity to have it. Let's do it with plants. The brander in me, the brand marketer in me, would have been tempted to create a new word as opposed to calling it meat, you know, call it something else. Yeah. But I think you guys must have had that discussion and decided not to because you wanted to say, no, this is meat. Yes. Yeah. Man, I mean, we debated that forever, including how we spelled meat and all these things. And Biz was a big part of that. Biz Stone, co-founder of Twitter, early investor in Beyond Meat. It's not wanting to be a sideshow. Not wanting to be, you can have chicken, beef, or pork, or you can have this. Ethan knew that this distinction would be the key to mass adoption. He was betting his company on it. Early on, we tried to get our chicken into the meat case. Viz arranged a call with the time the CEO of Whole Foods, Walter Robb, our co-CEO, and they weren't ready, we weren't ready, it didn't happen. This was a blow to Beyond Meat strategy. If their target customer is a meat eater, they would need to find them where that customer shops, in the meat aisle. But getting into the meat case wasn't Beyond's only play. 
If they couldn't do that, they could continue to improve their product and they could work on their plant-based beef, which, if you remember, is what they knew their customers would want most. It was almost a race to see which product, chicken or beef, would finally convince the Walter Robs of the world to stock beyond with the other meat. This race would come to a head in 2013 when they got the opportunity to bring in a very important taste tester that could make or break the company. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just, like, share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was, like, sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. We're back with Ethan Brown of Beyond Meat. And we're talking about how to understand and track customer wishes, even when those wishes are inconvenient, inconsistent, or even wrong. When we left off, Ethan and his team of scientists and food engineers were racing to get their plant-based beef burger customer ready. They already had a great plant-based chicken, but they knew that their customers would want beef most of all. But in the middle of that race, they got the chance to get their first product, the chicken, in front of a very special audience of one. One of the things that struck me when I was reading this transition is part of your origin was actually, in fact, persuading Bill Gates yeah. by sampling with a chicken taco. So you were you were moving away from the product by which you persuaded Bill yeah. to get on board with the mission and invest. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your Bill Gates chicken taco experience and then yeah. you know how that evolved in talking with him. It was a really funny day for me. I literally couldn't get into my hotel room because I had maxed out all my cards and everything and had to run. I remember I was running at night, very late at night, because I wanted to get to bed and solve this issue to try to find an ATM that would allow me to basically validate another card that I could then go use. <laughs> As an entrepreneur, you may be listening right now in cringing in recognition. When you get the chance to audition in front of a potential investor like Bill Gates, you have to be ready to literally go for broke. But the challenges didn't stop there. The next day, where we were presenting, there was not a kitchen, so we had to get an extended stay room. And I had a, a brilliant chef with me, David Anderson, and a bunch of our scientists and stuff. And so we rented out this room and started preparing the meals for him. And David looks a little bit like he could be in a rock band. And smoke just starts bellowing out of the room. It looks like a meth. I mean, it looks like something really bad is happening inside. You know? And so anyway, so he cooks an amazing meal. We rush it over there. And as we're getting to the room to see Bill, three guys come out in suits, and I wasn't wearing a suit, 
all rumpled looking and very dejected. And this comported completely with my anticipation because I had been told that he's going to zero in on some numbers in your presentation and you're going to have to do some very quick math and mental gymnastics and, you know, it's going to be a very harrowing experience. This was a live or die moment. Everything's on the line. Ethan could have done everything right up until this point, but if this one customer didn't like his product, he might as well go home. Bill couldn't have been nicer. Couldn't have been nicer. Just wanted to talk about the mission, about the underlying fundamentals of the business, about his children, about the world. And I've met with him a few times since and I worked very closely with his fund. And Guy is a prince. So it was a wonderful experience. Okay, full disclosure. Knowing Bill, this does not surprise me. Bill remembers what it's like to be an entrepreneur building from the ground up. And Bill has been on a mission to curb climate change for the better part of his philanthropic career. Even if he thought the product sucked, I have no doubt he would still be rooting for Ethan. He just wouldn't invest. It might be just, good luck with the next pitch, keep going. Sorry, your product's terrible. And then Ethan would be totally free to pitch it somewhere else. Luckily, that's not at all what happened. After the slightly smoke-filled audition, Bill Gates wrote in his blog, Like most people, I don't think I can be easily fooled. But that's just what happened when I was asked to taste a chicken taco and tell whether the meat inside was real or fake. The meat certainly had the look and smell of chicken. I took a bite, and it had the taste and texture of real chicken too. But I was surprised to learn that there wasn't an ounce of real chicken in it. The meat was made entirely of plants, and yet I couldn't tell the difference. What I was experiencing was more than a clever meat substitute. It was a taste of the future of food. So that's it, right? The end. Go to credits. I'm Reid Hoffman. Thanks for listening. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. Not exactly. When the chicken hit the market, it wasn't a breakout hit. A New York Times food columnist called it bland, unexciting, and not very chicken-like, but not offensive either. And a Huffington Post writer said, The chicken strips seem to inhabit a strange territory between meat and vegetable. These reviews weren't all bad. They did point out how close Beyond Meat was to, quote-unquote, real meat. But these also weren't the rave reviews that would launch them to scale. Beyond needed to get it absolutely right on their next big product launch, the burger. It actually went back to technology. I know the whole debate about don't let engineers run your company, listen to the customer. I listen to the customer like nobody else. But I began to see that we could produce a beef that was different and important. And it wasn't until that point that I really started to invest in getting us to market. Beyond kept pushing the science until it could catch up with their market goals. To Ethan, the race was about more than the survival of Beyond Meat. It was about the survival of the planet. I wanted to do something that was unique and extraordinary. And that's really our, always our mandate to our research team. There's a lot of people doing this, but we have set up this Manhattan Beach project here. It's supposed to evoke that sense of urgency of the Manhattan Project Second World War. You've got all these really talented people here. Don't produce something common. Produce something outrageously great. Finally, right around 2015 and 2016, Ethan's Manhattan Beach Project had a breakthrough. The breakthrough for us was being able to produce a fresh platform, something we call fresh, which is something that would appear to the human sensory experience as raw meat. 
right? That was the thing. So how do we produce something that looks like raw meat that transitioned under three or four minutes into a cook state and gives all the aroma and everything else? And that I started to see that we could do. Remember, Ethan knew that a viable beef replacement would truly change diets and lives, but would only work if it pleased the meat eaters. And the meat eaters would only find them if their product was sitting in their usual freezer at the grocery store. So we didn't want to put it in that penalty box of the meat alternative section, always wanted it to be in the meat case. So we finally had a product worthy of doing that. And in 2015 or 16, we got in there. This was the birth of the Beyond Burger. And its appearance changed everything. It bled like a real beef burger. It sizzled on the grill. It looked raw. Was the theory of being in the meat section that actually, in fact, to meet the mission, people have to understand that this is literally just at least as good and interesting and be there versus the penalty box? Or was it that that's the only way the transformation is going to happen? Or what was the theory of we must be in that same place? It was we want to be on the main stage in the most basic sense of the proposition. But more nuanced than that was the desire to be part of and almost celebrate all the trappings of meat. And so to not run counter to what people love so much about meat, but rather create something that's better. Putting Beyond Meat where other meat lived was, in a way, telling the customer not just we're in the right place, but you're in the right place. There's a distinct boldness in this approach. Rather than scold a customer for not shopping in the vegan aisle, it's saying, you're not wrong to love meat. We love meat too. Now try ours. But getting in front of their target customer wasn't Beyond Meat's only challenge. They also had to get that customer to reject some long-standing, deeply held, and frankly wrong beliefs about plants. That's where folks like Chris Paul come in. So let's talk a little bit about marketing. Talk a little bit about your talent acquisition and deployment as part of that. And how, like, hey, this is meat. This is actually, in fact, the same thing. And matter of fact, better for you, better for the world, better for... All kinds of things. So talk a little bit about that. As I mentioned, I had this exposure as a kid to agriculture, and we had a dairy farm. We had 100 head of Holstein cattle. So I paid attention to the milk industry a lot. And then I loved athletics, and so the Milk Does a Body Good was the first campaign, and then the Milk Mustache campaign and, and Got Milk. I just remember being surprised, alarmed, curious, interested in the fact that you could advertise a particular type of protein in schools directly to kids. You know, like I didn't see huffy bikes being able to do that. (laughs) Like it was just, how'd they get that? When it came time for us to build a marketing campaign, I actually called the original sponsor of the Got Milk campaign. For those of you who didn't grow up in the U.S. in a specific period of the 90s, the Got Milk campaign featured athletes, actors, and all manners of celebrities posing with a glass of cow juice and sporting a thickly applied milk mustache. The message? Milk makes you stronger, healthier, and more agile. You know, like athletes are. It was the author of this epic campaign that Ethan wanted for Beyond Meat. This guy, Jeff Manning, who's a dear friend now, I said, can you help me create a program where I can help them understand that if they consume this product, they're going to look and feel better and have a better long-term health outcome. And so there's controversy around milk, but there should not be controversy around this because the science is so clear. With Jeff's help and the help of a bunch of smart players on Beyond's marketing team, they crafted campaigns around celebrity endorsements. Everyone from Snoop Dogg and Shaquille O'Neal to Sean White and Lindsey Vaughn. They especially leaned into athletes as the ideal spokespeople for their product. 
like Chris Paul. Chris Paul is a great example. Chris, 36 years old, been in the NBA for a very long time, caught an alley-oop dunk during the 2020 All-Star game. After the game, they asked him, how are you doing that at your age? He's six foot, maybe six one. He says, well, I went plant-based. I don't have any more inflammation. I don't even have to ice anymore. That's one of Ethan's favorite stories because Ethan act like I can't dunk. <laughs> Once again, NBA All-Star Chris Paul. I actually dunk pretty often now. And it's been a combination of changing my trainers and changing my diet. I don't want to say diet. I hate that word because diet to me sounds temporary. You know, it has to be a lifestyle change. Since becoming vegan, Chris says he's really felt a difference in his post-game routine. I had three games in the last five, six days. I don't have to ice my knees after games. That's so crazy to me, right? I played a game last night, didn't ice after the game. And I'm up walking around like it's nothing. And you can't tell me that that's not directly correlated to being plant-based because I've played so many years and so many games and I've woke up those next days after games like aching and sore and can't move. And it's nice. It's definitely made basketball better, but more than anything, it's made life more enjoyable. Playing with my kids, it sounds crazy, but it, if I had a game on a Wednesday for years and my kids wanted to go in the backyard and like play baseball or do something on a Tuesday afternoon, I'd be like, you know, dad, I got to sit, I got to rest. I got to rest my legs. You know, I got to do this. But no, life is so much better now. This kind of testimony is exactly what Ethan was hoping for. You can hear the sincerity in Chris's story and see the proof in the game tape. Edwin Land, who I really admire, the inventor of the Polaroid, had a funny line, which is not really true, but he says, you know, marketing is what you do when your product's no good. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you do have to market because there's so many differentiated products in the market, or you have to differentiate rather. But if there's truth to what you're doing, it's a hell of a lot easier to market. And so having these athletes out there doing that is incredible. Using Chris and other trusted ambassadors helped ease the customer into a more open mindset. A mindset that would accept this brand new product as not just as good as meat, but indistinguishable from meat itself. I mentioned before just how hard it is to create an entirely new food category that people will feel okay about, much less turn into obsessive fans. Ethan knew that already, as he had pointed out earlier in the show. We're very conservative as a species when it comes to what we want to put in our mouth, for good reason, because we can die if you put the wrong thing in, but there's a skepticism that you have to overcome. Ethan and his team worked incredibly hard to overcome that skepticism. He personally drove from supermarket to supermarket, giving samples and interacting with customers. I would drive around in Maryland and Ohio, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and meet with these clients and meet with chefs all over the place too. You know, go to universities and try to sell into their hospitals, stuff like that. And that's the thing about when you build a business and you don't have venture funding in the beginning, the customer is your lifeline, the consumer is your lifeline. And so I listened to the customer all day long when I was building this business in the stores, giving out samples and stuff like that. And so I knew what their reservations were. And one of them was, is there anything artificial in it? Is this real? This concern about what was real was one that Ethan completely understood. But the answer was a little bit more complicated than yes or no. The concept, is it real, was an interesting one, right? And so, yes, it is a real assembly of the core parts of meat. It didn't run through an animal. And that was the complicated part to explain, and still is. That's the thing we really have to keep marketing on is 
People say it's processed. And then you say, okay, well, it's a tale of two processes, right? This is our process. Ethan's already told us a bit about this process. We take the protein from a plant. We take the lipids from a plant. We take the minerals from non-animal sources, combine those with water and vitamins, run that through heating, cooling, and pressure to structure them into the architecture of muscle or meat. Or you feed those plants and you give that water to the animal. And then they develop that muscle. That animal is then subject to the antibiotics, to the slaughter, and then that is presented on the center of your plate. Both are real assemblies. One comes from one source and one comes from the other, and we have to make that really clear to people. That's what we're working on. We got to thinking, how could you make this tale of two processes even clearer? So, in classic Masters of Scale fashion, we came up with a handy song that might help. If you want to disrupt the meat-based scenery, don't you look any further than your market greenery. Starts with science, fava, beans, and peas. The process is plant-based and the product is meat. The structure that makes your burger complete only comes from plants and leaves, Bessie and peas. You take the protein and the fats from vegetation, vegan minerals and vitamins into the congregation. Heat and cold, then it's pressed. The tissue structure is addressed. The meat assembly, it isn't fallacy. The work is not just for show, it's also non-GMO, true to the core. Just like the steaks at the store, the work of R&D to get the color using beets and the head chemistry director. Works on smell and taste with an E-nose aroma inspector. The vegetable processes ends up costing us far less water. And you ought to know the truth unconcealed. This process is real. Ethan didn't have our handy song when he was taking his product samples around to supermarkets. Rather, what he had were hundreds of one-on-one conversations with customers. After the question of whether Beyond Meat was natural or real, there was another question he got all the time. So does this burger, like, have GMOs? GMOs, genetically modified organisms. Answering this question right would prove critical to Beyond Meat's success. There's a skepticism that you have to overcome. That's one of the reasons I stayed away from GMOs. It's just too controversial. And what are my own views are don't really matter. Biologists in our audience already know that GMO is a very, very broad term. You could say that technically, every ear of corn we eat has been genetically modified from ancient maize. But that doesn't change the wall of negative customer opinion that Ethan would have to face if he used plants that had been genetically modified in the modern sense. This is the parallel of the purple button from the beginning of the episode— Is it a pain to avoid GMOs altogether when making food products? Kind of. Is it important to the customer? Extremely. So, you listen. Another strong customer preference Ethan followed, despite the science, made his work a little trickier. And that was around whether to use soy in the Beyond Burger. Historically, soy has been one of the most popular sources of plant protein in the world. It's the building block of tofu, veganism's long-suffering workhorse. And if your mandate is making plant-based protein, it's genuinely difficult to leave it out. But Ethan had been listening intently to customer feedback. 
the time we were coming into market in 2009 and 10 and 11, soy was being demonized. I have no issue with soy whatsoever. I drink a ton of soy milk. I think it's a great whole high amino acid score, really, really good crop and product. But I'm not going to use it because I know the consumer doesn't want it. So was the shift from soy entirely customer demand? Yeah. In fact, we knew it wasn't right. We knew that the consumer sediment on it was wrong. The issue came down to something called phytoestrogen, a type of plant hormone that occurs naturally in soybeans. We have a great program at Stanford with their medical school because one of our scientists had worked in the labs over there working on treating cancer. And they had tried to use phytoestrogen from soy to see if it had any effect on the body. And it just passed through and had no effect. This seems like a pretty groundbreaking discovery. One that you might even want to shout from the rafters. This just in. Stanford scientists give the all clear to soy. Across the land, relieved diners dig into plates of edamame. Our long national nightmare finally over. But Ethan had seen and heard from enough customers to know what decisions might break their fragile trust. And honoring that trust was more important than picking this particular battle. Ultimately, this wasn't about any one ingredient. It was about an ethos on which Beyond and their customers are totally aligned. They just want it to be natural. People want to eat like their grandparents ate. They just want to do it in a healthier manner. Ethan has continued to listen obsessively to the customer, including when it came time to IPO in 2019. I think in 2013, I set a goal to IPO, and we, our revenue was so small, it was a joke that I was doing it. But you don't think it at the time. You think, oh, it's totally reasonable, like five-year plan, blah, blah, blah. And I think we missed it by a year. But it wasn't so much for the capital because we had great funders. For me, it was for the marketing and the ability to open up to the public who so loved this brand and what we're doing and help us build it, the opportunity to become shareholders. You know, for so many years, we're being asked, can we buy shares by individuals? And I think this company has been built by the consumer. We've certainly listened to them, and I wanted them to be part of it. Beyond Meat has worked hard to keep their finger on the consumer pulse during the pandemic. We pivoted extremely quickly to retail. So we started to take all of our food service products that could be packaged into retail and packaged them in retail. And we launched a very low-cost offering called the Cookout Classic, which was 10 burgers for $1.60 a burger or something, which is much cheaper than where we were. We did that. Almost overnight, at the time, the beef industry was undergoing a lot of supply shock, so their prices were spiking. And so we did this as an opportunity to get closer to the price of beef at a time when people needed value. And so we just tried to capitalize to the extent we could on changing market conditions and get as much of our inventory out of the food service space and into retail, and it worked. What didn't go as smoothly was it was a year of variability in the sense that the consumer would go into stores and stock up like crazy, and then not go back. And when that's happening in real time, you're not exactly sure what's happening. This was a problem. Ethan's key to success has been consistently paying attention to customer habits. So in that portion of the pandemic, when customers were cleaning entire supermarket shelves, it was really hard to track what they were going for. You're not sure if they've shifted over completely to retail for the long term, right? or where they're coming and going. And they were kind of coming and going. And so when you have a network that needs to have steady supply, that gets really hard to manage. And that was a challenge for us. Yep. This is one of the Adams things, the supply chains and inventory, transport, the whole thing. Much harder in your business than most of the businesses I do. And so respect. Thank you. <laughs> right? I appreciate that. Oh, it means a lot. Thank you. Thank you. We might end Ethan's story there. 
except that something happened that would prove to be a much more newsworthy ending. Beyond Meat announced three massive new multi-year partnerships with PepsiCo, McDonald's, and Yum! Brands. Each collaboration will yield new plant-based products, including, at McDonald's, something called the McPlant Burger, and at Yum! making menu items for KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell. Their PepsiCo joint venture is called the Planet Partnership, capitalized in a way to highlight the word plant. After all, you can't have one without the other. These partnerships are exactly how you get to widespread adoption and massive scale. It's the goal Ethan had set his sights on when he first founded the company. If there's a global crisis, you don't fix it by nibbling around its edges. You have to take a bite right out of the middle. It's hard every time we have a new product. It is really hard. I spoke at Tesla a couple of years ago and I said I was really happy to be here because you guys are the only people that are worse at commercialization than we are. You know, and they just like the room just exploded because they know how hard it is. Ultimately, the dream is not having to choose between what makes a great product and what the customer wants. In a perfect world, the two are totally aligned. But when there is conflict, approach each one with the same question in mind. What part of this relationship can I least afford to break? The answer will almost always come down to customer trust. They need to trust that you are bringing them a well-built product backed by science. And they need to trust that you're listening to their concerns. That trust is what you must preserve at all costs. So choose your battles well. I'm Reed Hoffman. Thanks for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely with sanitized audio gear. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producers are Jordan McLeod, Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark Gray, Hallie Bondi, Marie McCoy Thompson, Christina Gonzalez, and Chris McLeod. Our editor at large is Bob Safian. 
Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Daniel Nissenbaum. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, and Andrew Nault. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Elisa Schreiber, David Sanford, Saida Sepieva, Adam Heiner, Emily McManus, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Sarah Sandman, Carrie Goldstein, Anna Pisano, Mina Corsala, Charlie Manessis, and Colin Howarth.